1 Kings 15. As we continue our journey through here, we should be finished with 1 Kings sometime about the end of August. And then after a short break, we will pick back up again and finish 2 Kings. Uh, It's true that originally it was just the book of Kings. And so we'll just keep on rolling on. This morning we have a text that is a bit of a bright spot. There's not going to be too many more of those as we go down. There'll be a few more. But it generally speaking gets pretty dark. But this morning we're going to be looking at the reigns of Abijam and Asa. So let us now go before God's throne of grace, seeking his blessing upon his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have blessed us with your word. We thank you for this history that you have given to us that is written down for our edification, for our encouragement. We ask, Lord, that you would teach us today from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever been driving somewhere, perhaps in the pre-GPS days, and started to get lost? You're not sure you're lost, but you're not sure you're on the right track anymore. This has probably never happened to any of the men, ever. You get wandering off. Maybe you can get lost without even leaving your home. You sit down at your desk, turn up your computer, get onto the internet to do some research for a project or for school. And all of a sudden you find out that a few stray clicks and you're off watching a basketball game being streamed in. Or you're learning about the derivation of odd English words because you've clicked there. You've gotten off track. And I'm sure that the children here have never experienced this in school, where they're told to do their lesson, and there's a story in the math problem that starts you talking about what happened last week, and all of a sudden you're up out of your seat throwing pencils at each other, and no one's getting any work done. That never happens in any home, right? Just getting off of the course that we're supposed to be on. You may have experienced something else too. When you're lost and you're sure and you turn around and you look and you look and all of a sudden you see a big sign for the root number that you know you're supposed to be on. And you say, aha! We're not really lost after all. Look, there it is. That's what's happening here this morning to the people of God in Israel and in Judah. Especially here in Judah, as they are seeking to get back on course of following the Lord. After what seems to be a situation that gets worse and worse, David has his difficulties, Solomon moves into sin, Rehoboam takes it to new heights. And so then we see what happens as God gets them back on course. What I'd like us to look at today are two kings. The first thing I'd like us to look at is Abijam. He is no better than his predecessor, but then again, he's no worse. He's no better, but he's also no worse. And he is succeeded by his son Asa. And we see Asa's bold reforms in the religion of the true and living God. 
And then we see Asa's smart politics, as he is a pretty good diplomat, or at least so we think. So let's look at Abijam and at Asa. First, looking at Abijam, that Abijam is no better but no worse than his father Rehoboam. We begin in chapter 15 of verse 1. Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam began to reign over Judah. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Abishalom. And he walked in all the sins that his father did before him. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him, and establishing, establishing Jerusalem. Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him, all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Now there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. The rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. And Abijam slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, reigned in his place. So the first thing that our chronicler, our historian tells to us is what Abijam did. And to be honest with you, our historian here isn't very impressed. Eight verses, including at least about half of which could be a formula that is plugged in in every king's reign. You know what that means, a formula. It's the same words and there's a blank where the name of the king is. And our historian writes in the name Abijam. So there's really not much that he's impressed with. But he does give us some clues about what's going on. Do you notice how this chapter begins? It says, now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam of Israel, Abijam starts to reign. Now this is done intentionally because... To be honest with you, as this goes on throughout the chapters, it drives commentary writers nuts. Because you see, they reckoned the year of a king differently in Israel than they did in Judah. And so what happens is, they're forever trying to reconcile, okay, what year is that? Is that 920 or 919? Or is it 921? They don't know because they're... Re they're counted differently. It's as if you had two different calendars and they're trying to mesh them. So why would our historian make such a mess for us? It's because he's trying to point out for something to us that he doesn't want us to forget. That this is an unnatural state of affairs. God's people are supposed to be united, not divided. And just because it happens to be the case, don't make it right. It's kind of like sin. We look around and we see sin everywhere and we say, well, nobody's perfect. And we think that's the natural state of affairs. But you know what? It's not. It's an unnatural state of affairs. It's a state of affairs that comes in because the world is not as God intended originally for it to be. Sin breaks into this world. Disunity breaks into this world. And God, by His grace, will deal with it. And Abijah has a very short reign. 
says here three years, but because of this calendar difficulty, what you need to realize is, he comes to the throne and reigns with his father for about a year, and then he reigns with his son for about a half a year. He really is in power like one full year. He's not even a one-term president. He's not there very long. That's after David has reigned for 40 years, Solomon's reigned for 40 years, and Rehoboam's reigned for 17. So there's not much to this man to commend him. But we do know also that he's taught and trained by his father, Rehoboam. How do we know that? Because the text tells us he walked in all the sins that his father did. The sad news here for the people of God is that Abijam was a quick study. He saw what his father did, saw what his father got away with, saw what his father valued, and he pursued it. He's living, breathing testimony to the truth of Exodus 20 that says the sins of the fathers will be visited upon the sons. Not in a judicial sense, but in the sense that if you lie, your children will grow up to be liars. That if you steal, your children will grow up to be thieves. Because that's what they see. That's what they are trained in. This little section here is a lesson, a prod, a provocation for fathers today. What you do matters. Not what you accomplish, but how you live your life before the Lord. It has very real consequences. One of the things that Abijam pursues, just like his father did, is war against Rehoboam, or excuse me, Jeroboam. He not only inherited his father's sins and temperament, he inherited his war too. Look at verse 6. It's described as war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And then in verse 7, that there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. And our historian here deals with it very quickly. You get a fuller picture of this by going to the book of Second Chronicles. And now this is something that you can do each week as a little bit of homework. You can not only look at the text here in Kings, but if you go to Second Chronicles, here, chapters 12, 13, and 14, and then in successive weeks, you'll be able to see another picture Kind of like we have four Gospels. Well, Abijam has war against Jeroboam. And the detail that we're given in Chronicles is that it's not going very well. He goes out to war, and he sees first that he's outnumbered. And then he finds out that he's surrounded. And so what Abijam tries to do is what his father did. He tries to talk his way out. He tries to use God as leverage against his enemies. He stands up and he says, Oh, come on, guys, you know you can't beat the line of David. You know God gave this kingdom to David. There's nobody on your side. Give up now. Jeroboam looks at him and says, Yeah, right, I've got two temples. You've only got one. I'm going to surround you and destroy you. And the people of Judah see themselves being surrounded. And God in His grace has left the remnant and has instructed His people for so many years that they realize they have no hope except for to turn to God. And they do a remarkable thing in Second Chronicles 13. They turn to the Lord and say, We can't do this. We can't win. You must help us. 
And even though they're outnumbered almost two to one, they destroy Jeroboam's army because God is with them. So he gets that success. But the problem is, is that that success is just temporary and it's just window dressing because he has a pattern that he is following. He follows the pattern of his father Rehoboam. You notice what the text does here? It's very interesting. The text talks about him having two fathers. His father Rehoboam, whose sins he walked in, and his father David, whose heart was true to the Lord. He has two choices that he can make. He can follow either his immediate father or his father David. And it's all a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of what food he eats or where he lives or what kind of bed he has or what clothes he wears. We see that every day, don't we? It's remarkable how children want to dress like their fathers, eat the foods that their fathers do, have the hobbies that their fathers do. But you see, the important thing here is the matter of the heart. And when Abijam is given this choice, he chooses his father Rehoboam and sin. His heart is not completely with God. His heart is not wholly true to the Lord, the text tells us. And it's because of that that he commits these sins. Notice what the scripture says. It's not because of his environmental upbringing. It's not because he wanted to do his father good. It's not because he didn't know any better and needed a better educational system. He committed his father's sins because he had his heart like his father. You start with the heart. It was not completely with God. That's exactly what Solomon warned against in 1 Kings 8 verse 61. He said, your heart must be holy with God. And then just a couple of chapters later, our historian tells us that Solomon ignored his own advice in chapter 11. And he sinned by not having his heart holy with God. So what does all this mean? Well, you say, well, my father wasn't a wicked king. My father wasn't even a king. How does this apply then to me? Well, you see, this principle is still with us. James puts it in a very interesting way. He says, don't be unstable. Don't be double-minded. James 1, verse 8. He says, you must be wholly committed to the Lord. Because if you're not, you'll be unstable in all your ways. You'll be like a sea that's tossed around. You see, what James is saying and what Abijam's life is saying to us today is, if we feel unstable in our marriages, in our financial deeds, in our work, the place to start is not by tightening up our belts and cinching up our boots. It's to start by being wholly committed to the Lord, by getting rid of that instability. By following the Lord. Well, that's what Abijam did. It's not exactly very exciting news. It's not something we'd be happy about. What really matters here is what God did behind Abijam. And what's he doing? He's preserving the kingdom. He preserved the kingdom in Rehoboam's day when Egypt invaded. They lost a bunch of goods, but Jerusalem didn't get sacked. Israel invades 
And God saves Abijam in 2 Chronicles 13 from Israel. And then later on, Egypt will invade again in Asa's day. And again, God is there preserving Israel. You see, God is behind history. God is everywhere to be seen preserving His kingdom. And it seems very odd because our text shows us that God is actually blessing Abijam and that nation in spite of the fact that they're guilty. But doesn't that seem odd to you? I'm sure that's not how you run your household, right? You don't see disobedience and reward it, do you? I'm guessing also that none of you parents say, well, you know, you disobeyed me, but your sister obeyed me, so therefore I'll let you off the hook. No. This is something that is unique to God. God sheds His grace upon a people who do not deserve it. He sheds it upon the unworthy for the sake of the worthy. Here in this case, David is highlighted. But isn't that really the whole crux of the Christian life? Isn't everything that you have a blessing on the unworthy from the worthy? From what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. From what He had earned. From how He obeyed. This is a picture of God keeping His promises, reminding us of this. And this is a pattern throughout history. We see it even in our own nation, don't we? We talk about living on borrowed capital. And how the Lord has preserved America thus far because of what He has done in the past through His people and because of the promises to His church. Is that your hope today? Do you hope that the Lord will preserve you not because of what you can do for Him, not because of what you have done, but because of what another has done for you? You see, that's a solid and sure hope. It's something you can't mess up. No matter what Abijam did, it could not change the fact of David's life and God's promise to David. Couldn't change it at all. Because you see, God keeps His promise. He says, for David's sake, the Lord gave him a lamp in Jerusalem. And we think about David's righteousness that we've talked about before. A righteousness that's not perfect. And we say, well, David was a pretty good guy, a good king, a man after God's own heart. And that must be why God preserved Abijam and Judah. But you see, that's not really what it's about. Because for David's sake, doesn't refer to what David did, but refers to what God promised this is again 2 Samuel 7, where God said to David, You will always have a man to sit on the throne. If he's wicked, I will chastise him. But I will always give you a lamp. I will always give you a shining beacon in Jerusalem for my own purposes, David. You see, Abijam is experiencing the blessing of the faithfulness of God. Because you see, God wants that lamp in Jerusalem. He wants that city on a hill. And this is why, to be honest, we are here today. Because God has preserved His church in spite of all her heresy, in spite of all her wickedness, in spite of all her faithlessness. God remains faithful to His people. This is what Asa did and what God did. Asa does one, or excuse me, 
what Abijam does. What Abijam does is one other thing. He begets and raises a son by the name of Asa. And we see that in verse 9. In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa began to, re- began to reign over Judah. And he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David, his father, had done. He got rid of the male cult prostitutes. He cut down the high places. He was a man of action. Asa takes on reform, and he takes it on boldly. We see Asa's bold reforms in verses 9 through 15. And what Asa winds up doing is reigning much longer than both his father and his grandfather. As a matter of fact, the Lord blesses Asa with long life and long reigning, so much so that he reigns longer than all but a very few kings of Judah and Israel. Forty-one years. That is a very long time, isn't it? Forty-one years to be king over a kingdom. But Asa's life reminds us of something else, too. You see, we look back and we say, Oh, Asa, he reigned for 41 years. He could get a lot done. He knew he had time to accomplish a great many things. But he didn't, did he? When Asa had started reigning, he might have thought, maybe I'll just get three years in like my father. Maybe six months. He wasn't promised a certain number of years. He knew if he was going to take action, he had to take it right away. He had to have a long-term view that didn't count on tomorrow. That's important for us in our own life. It's important to have a long-term view of ministry. A long-term view of parenting. A long-term view of marriage. To be in it for the long haul. And to see what God will do from the beginning to the end. But we must live like today is our last day. We can't say, oh, well, I'll take down those high places. I'll get to that, oh, maybe year 23 of my reign. I've got 41 years, so I don't really need to get to all of these heinous sins for at least 10 or 15 years. Can we raise our children like that? Well, I could teach them how to read maybe around 16 or 17. they got plenty of time. No, we seize the day. That's what we're called to do as the people of God. Take a long-term view, but seizing the day immediately. And Asa does that not just with his actions, but with his heart. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, verse 11, as David, his father, had done. He did what was right, but I want you to notice, he also is not perfect. Look at verse 14. After our historian tells us he got rid of the prostitutes, got rid of the idols, got rid of the Asherah, it says, well, but the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. If we look down at verse 18, we'll see that part of Asa's politics is to bribe a pagan king. So Asa is not someone who does the right thing every time. Reminds you a lot of David, doesn't it? But yet he's described as doing that which is right. Because what our historian is concerned about again is the heart. I hope you're seeing a pattern here. 
We're going to see it in every king where his heart is held up before you and you see whether it was with God or against God. And that is where the judgment is made. And then the evidences of that are set forth. You see, Asa had a pattern he could choose too. He could choose the pattern of Abijam, his father. He could choose the pattern of Rehoboam, his grandfather. But he says, no, I will choose the pattern of David, my father. You see, we're not bound by our environment. We're not bound by our families. We're not bound by our circumstances. So often we want that to be the case. We want to make up an excuse and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm an angry person a lot, but I grew up in an angry family. Okay? The scripture says, be angry and do not sin. Well, you know, I'm, I kind of exaggerate the truth, but, you know, my dad always did, and my mother could tell a tall tale. Well, that's fine. The scripture says, do not bear false witness. You see, we're called after the pattern that the Lord sets before us in the scriptures. And just like that, Asa chooses that pattern. It's the pattern of David. And he acts on his principles. You see, he doesn't just talk a good game. Some of his fathers, in the, in, not in the faith, but his fathers in reality did that. Abijam could talk a pretty good game. Rehoboam could talk a pretty good game. In his later life, Solomon got used to talking a good game with nothing to back it up. But you see, Asa acts on it. Look at what he does. He acts on his principles. He gets rid of the male cult prostitutes. He removes Maacah, his queen, from being queen, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made an abominable image. He cuts down this image. He brings to the house of the Lord sacred gifts of silver and gold. You see, he knows what he's supposed to do and he acts on it. Instead of taking from the temple, he gives to it. After the spirit of David, donating silver and gold and vessels. And he starts to clean up what's going on out there. You see, it's not just positive, but it's negative. He's encouraging, but he also corrects things that need correcting. And he doesn't show favoritism. Do you notice that? His mother, actually his grandmother being used here, Maacah, the daughter of Abishalom, is what is called in the Hebrew, the big lady. That's what she is. They've translated it here, the queen mother, but she is the big lady or the great lady. You see, she's not just the queen mother. You could tell from that that she's one of those that lives in the home and when mama's not happy, nobody's happy. She might be the stereotypical Jewish mother. Making Asa guilty about these things. Oh, Asa, couldn't you just please leave this Asherah for me? It's so wonderful. Your nephew built it. It's so high. It's so good. Leave it there for me, please. Do me a favor. I'm old. I'm sick. Please. And what does Asa do? Does he give in? Is he cowardly? Does he hide behind his grandmother's skirt? The way the king of Israel hides behind his wife's skirt? No. He says what's right is right and what's wrong is wrong no matter who's doing it. And I would put it to you that he did that for love of the big lady. Because he knew that as long as that Asherah was up there, she was going to sin. 
And she was going to be far from God. And he did it as much to clean up his kingdom as he did for that woman. Is that how you live your life? You know, many of us today in the church are afraid to clean up our own act and to clean up the act of the church. We try and turn a blind eye and just hope things go away and they don't make too much of a mess. Maybe, but there are others of us who are eager to clean up every mess that's everywhere around so that things are neat and tidy, but we're not concerned about real people and real problems. Asa cared for his mother and his grandmother and his people, and that is why he acted. You see, there was no compromise in his actions. And Asa saw, much clearer than Abijah did, what God can do behind him. You see, because we also, we see if we look at Second Chronicles, not just what Asa did, but what God did. You see, at that time it says that an invading army comes up from Egypt. And it's a big army. It's a really big army. A million people, we are told. Now, can you imagine that? You're the king, and you go out, and a million enemy soldiers are on the other side. What are you going to do? You don't have that kind of power. You don't know what you can do. The most you can raise is 300,000 men. You're outnumbered more than three to one. And these are real professional soldiers, Egyptians, not tribesmen running around. What do you do? Well, if you're Asa, you start by turning to God and saying, God, this is in your hands. Saying, in essence, what we've heard before, this isn't my problem, God. This is your problem. You deal with it. You have the power. You have the might. He seeks the help of the Lord. And he doesn't do it for power or for wealth. He does it because his heart is right with God. And what God does is, he protects Judah from Egypt. This is a major undertaking. This is God coming through in a very big way, in a very obvious way. But he does it for the same reason that he acted for Abijah. You see, it's not because he liked Asa more. It's not because Asa obeyed more. It's because God is always faithful to his promise. He has promised David that there would always be a son of his on the throne. And until that promise reaches complete fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, God will do everything that he needs to to keep his word. Half a million Israelites, get out of the way. A million Egyptians, get out of the way. False worshiping, Get out of my way. No obstacle is too big for God. God keeps His promises. And it's a knowledge of God keeping His promises that pushes Asa on to do what he did. So what we've seen here basically is God stopping the free fall of Judah. It's as if He, he takes him by a hidden hand as the roller coaster is going down full speed, grabs it, stops it. And instead of plunging down into the valley, that roller coaster starts to hear the click, click, click of being pushed back up the hill. You see, God is changing 
the course of the kingdom of Judah. Not Asa, not Abijam, not some smart aleck minister. It's God. God turns around an entire nation. Is that comforting to you? Especially as you watch the evening news. You see statistics about abortion. You see laws passed in California. You see filth all over the airwaves. God turns nations around. God preserves His people. It's God who acts. If we want to see America turned around, we don't do it by electing more congressmen. We don't do it by passing laws. We do it by being what the church is supposed to be, on our knees, with our whole hearts, committed to God, seeing what God will do. And if God gives us 300 more years of glorious freedom, praise to Him. And if God makes us the servants of the Chinese, praise to Him. Because it's His actions. It's what He will do. He's in charge. The sad thing is, is that Asa forgets this. So we've seen what Abijam has done. And then we see Asa's bold reforms. And now we see Asa's smart politics. We might call it smart aleck politics. You see, he thinks he's safe from the threat. Egypt has been dealt with. Israel's been defeated once. But the war rages on. The war continues on with Israel. And Israel ups the ante. Jeroboam comes down and he fortifies a town by the name of Ramah. Verse 17. Baasha comes down and builds Ramah. There's a new king in town. You don't know it yet, but don't worry about it. We'll look at him next week. He's taken over for Jeroboam, and you know what? He's worse. And he says, I'm going to really stick it to this kingdom of Judah. I'm going to take a town that's about five miles north of their border, and I'm going to create a blockade city, and I'm going to strangle them. And Asa starts to get worried. But the thing is, he forgets the one who delivered him from Egypt. He forgets the one who empowered him to clean up religion. He forgets the one who gave him power to stand up to the big lady. And what he does is he gets some ministers and some politics and some talking heads. And he says, come on guys, let's figure out what we could do. I know what we could do. Let's bribe the king of Syria and get him to go to war with Israel. If Baash is fighting up north, he won't come down south. And what he does is he takes all of the treasure out of the temple and he gives it to the king of Syria. Now the text here, sometimes the translators do us a disservice. Most translators want to launder Asa's money. They say, well, he gave him a gift. No, it's a bribe. Plain and simple. He says, I'll give you all this money and you do something for me. You break your covenant with the king of Israel and make a covenant with me. Now that sounds smart. Take all of your wealth that's dedicated to the Lord and give it to a pagan king and ask him to be your best friend at the same time you tell him to cheat on his current best friend. That's Asa's plan for security. Sounds a bit like Jeroboam's plan for security. It's a plan for security 
outside of God. And what's the result? The Syrian king is all too happy to say, Sure, he's not going to bite the hand that feeds him. Send it over. Send me over all the wealth. And he goes and he invades Israel. And Asa is happy about this because the pressure is taken off him. But think about it. Now a pagan king is now on the scene and is invading the kingdom of God, the northern kingdom of Israel. They lose territory. God's people are in league with God's enemies. It's purely political. And what we see here are the clouds starting to gather. The gathering clouds. Because we see Asa is victorious. Baasha forgets about this city. He leaves all the stuff there. And the scavengers go out and they take, they rip the two by fours off the buildings. And they carry them south and they build a fortification. And they think they've won a great victory. The question though comes is at what cost? Israel has been invaded. A covenant has been broken, which God never blesses. And we're going to see that this will come back to haunt the kingdoms of Israel and Judah for the next several hundred years. Actions have consequences. Actions that are short-sighted have long-term consequences. Asa's children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren will be reading this and going, Why did you do that? as they look out at Syrian armies surrounding their cities, threatening to kill everyone inside. You see, sometimes we could be like that too. We take short-sighted solutions. We don't look to the Lord. We take shortcuts. Oh, well, if we just do this, it'll take care of it. It's very tempting, isn't it? Especially for those of us that are go-getters. To go and do to get it done. But you see, we need to wait on the Lord. Asa didn't do that. Asa teaches us that faithfulness is not the same as success. You see, we're tempted to do that. We look out over there and we say, well, that church has 5,000 people in it, so it must be successful. Right? Or we do the opposite in our reform worldview, don't we? We're afraid of megachurches, so we look over there and we see 25 people huddled up in a building and we think they must have their theology right. Otherwise, there'd be more people there. They must be being pure to the Lord. Otherwise, they'd be big like a megachurch. The smaller we are, the better we are, the purer we are. And we get down to a mentality where what we say is, well, I pretty much agree with me and Calvin, except for I'm not sure about myself on Wednesday. But you see, it's looking at the circumstance, and equating that with faithfulness. And Asa is tempted to do that. He says, well, we won. It must be because I'm faithful. But that's not the case. We're going to see Israel in the next few chapters get very wealthy, get very prosperous, all of the time that they are in the spiritual toilet. So why then do we have these stories? Because one of the things that our historian wants to do for us is to show us the possibility of being faithful. To be a King Asa, to not have it all together, to have a bad father, to be in a bad kingdom with bad things going on and bad circumstances and pressures and, and difficulties and worries, and it's still possible to be faithful to God. 
That's true for all of you as well. Even when work's busy. Even when all the kids are driving you nuts. To be faithful to God. But where it starts is with the heart. That's where it started with Abijam. That's where it started with Asa. But it moves out into action. And this is a heart that trusts God, not results. That's what God calls you to today. To trust Him, not the results. To look to Him, not to your circumstances. To be renewed in heart. Not just simply in what others can see. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have given to us this Your Word. We ask that You would bless it to our hearts. That we might know You better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.